Now, in some ways, you have to feel sorry for Glenn. Glenn had a very successful career. He was very good at his job. In fact, he was so good that he eventually went into management. And he obtained one of the top management positions in his line of work. But then, almost in the twinkling of an eye, something happened. He gave an interview. He said something. And as the saying goes, he was toast. Well, I'm sure you're interested in knowing who this Glenn was and what exactly it was that he said. Any guesses? No, I'll tell you. We're talking about Glenn Hoddle. Does anyone recognize the name? Oh, goodness. Well, if you're as old as I am and you follow football, you know that Glenn Hoddle was an English football player. And he spent most of his career playing for Tottenham Hotspur in the top league in England. He led them to two FA Cup victories, a one Europa Cup victory. He was very good. As a matter of fact, in his first year in the league, he was voted the best young player in England. He played 690 games for his club team, scored 144 goals, played 53 times for the English national team, and he was described 20 years after he retired by the Professional Footballers Association as the most naturally gifted midfielder that England had ever produced. Uh, are there any Brazilians in the house? Oh, okay, this one's for you. This is an aside. The English think they are God's gift to football, soccer, because they think they invented the game. The Brazilians know they are God's gift to soccer because they know how to play the game. Anyway, after he retired from active, active playing, Glenn Hoddle went into management. He managed Chelsea for a while, one of the top English clubs, and eventually he was appointed manager of the English national team. So it looked like he was set for a very good career. But then came the interview, and then he lost his job. So what exactly was it that Glenn Hoddle said? Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look. There we start. My beliefs have evolved in the last eight or nine years that the spirit has come back again, There's, that there is nothing new. That has been around for thousands of years. You have to come back and learn and face some of the things you have done, good and bad. There are too many injustices around. Next. You and I have been physically given two hands and two legs and a half-decent brain. Some people have not been born like that for a reason. The karma is working from another lifetime. I have nothing to hide about that. It's not only people with disabilities. What you sow, you reap. You have to look at things that happen in your life and ask why it comes around. Okay, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with what he said? Well, come on now. We're all good Christians, right? Theologically unsound for one, one thing. 
It's this sort of belief about karma and so on is usually associated with Hindus, though it should be made out clear that not all Hindus believe it. But the key point here, and the one that got him in trouble, was that he is saying to disabled people that you are disabled because of a sin you have committed in a previous life. He gave this interview on January 30th, 1999. On February 2nd, he was fired as the coach of the English national team. Now, the idea that you have disabilities because of your sins is something that seems to be prevalent in society. I don't know how many preachers I have heard who have made that particular point, that if you get sick, well, you're being punished. But it's not a new idea. It's been around for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, it was prevalent at the time of Jesus. As Stephen Chavez writes, 2,000 years ago, the common perception was that health and prosperity were directly related to God's favor. If you were sick, impoverished, or the victim of bad choices, that was evidence of God's judgment. And this kind of thinking was incorporated into the Jewish Talmud. And the Talmud is the sort of compilation of the beliefs of rabbinical Judaism and serves as the basis for Jewish theological thought. So here's just a couple of examples from the Talmud. There's no death without sin, and there's no suffering without iniquity. A sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven. But we don't have to rely just on the Talmud for examples of this particular belief. We can look at the Bible. Which book of the Bible highlights this? Job. The book of Job. So let's just take a look at a few verses from the book of Job. Job 4.7. Remember how whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? In other words, Job, if you were really innocent, none of this would have happened to you. Let's look on. Job 8, verses 3 and 4. Job 8, verses 3 and 4. Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away from their transgressions. So, Job, your sons, obviously, sinned. Job 11, verses 14 and 15. If iniquity were in your hands and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your faces with spots. You could be steadfast and not fear. So, Job, you're obviously guilty. Job 20, verses 4 and 5. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but a moment? Another condemnation by the three friends of Job. And the last one we'll look at. Job, is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? Job, guilty, 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 guilty. Most of uh, the book of Job is his friends hammering away at how guilty Job is. But is that really the way that it should be? Is that really the way that it is? No, it is not. Let's turn to our scripture verse, John 9, verses 1 to 3. 
Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Just as an aside, I think it's interesting that the disciples, when they pass by the blind man, show no sympathy or no any evidence that they want to help him. Rather, they want to enter into a theological, philosophical discussion. I guess they still had much to learn. So what is Jesus saying in this passage? Neither the man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. The blind man was not being punished in any way for any particular sin. He was in that condition so that God could work on him. Are we then saying that he was created blind just so that God, God's works could be revealed? No. We're saying that as a consequence of his blindness, God is able to reveal his works in him. But this isn't the only example that Jesus provides for us to look at. Because he goes even further in Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. And I'll get to verses 15 and 16, but we know the story. There was a woman who was bent over, having been struck by a spirit for over 18 years. Jesus placed his hand upon her. He healed her. And she got up and immediately praised God. This happened on a Sabbath, as many of the healings of Christ took place. The leader of the synagogue got up to protest against healing on the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus said to him. The Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So not ought this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. So where do we stand? In the case of the man born blind from birth, there was no particular sin that caused his blindness. Rather, Jesus used the blindness to reveal a miracle of God. Just as Jesus performed a miracle on Brother Eugene, he performed a miracle on the man born blind from birth. In the case of the bent-over woman, there's, again, no particular sin involved. Rather, it is because she had been bound by Satan. The fault lies not with the woman. The fault lies with Satan. So neither the blind man nor the woman bent over have any fault, any particular sin that deserves punishment. But Jesus goes even deeper because he takes it one step further. So let's look at Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. There were some present at that season, at that time, who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered? 
such things? Some people would say so. I tell you no, Jesus continued, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. So what do we take away from this? I think the SDA Bible commentary gives a good explanation. The answer, talking about sinners above all, implies that the massacre was considered by the messengers and the audience gathered about Jesus as a divine judgment, at least to some degree, on those who had lost their lives. This conclusion Jesus emphatically denies. Whenever a convenient opportunity arose, Jesus repudiated the popular notion that suffering is necessarily a punishment for sin. But there's even more. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus states in Matthew 13, verses 24b to 25, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Christ here talks about an enemy who wanted both to endanger the wheat but also to discredit God himself. The enemy will try anything in his power to tempt those who follow God. To think that Christians as a group are exempt from what damage the devil can do is to ignore reality. It says in Matthew 24, 24, that the devil is there through false prophets, quote, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And the devil, of course, as we've said, is Satan. In Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus notes that he, the Father, makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And the Bible commentary verse on the screen refers to this. By this obvious illustration from the natural world, Jesus discredits the popular Jewish fallacy that God bestows his blessings on saints and withhold them from sinners. We only have to read the Bible, both Old and New Testament, to know that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. So Christ makes it clear that illness and suffering are not the consequences of a particular sin. So why does this notion still remain so popular in our societies, even today, even among us, even with myself? I think the Anglican writer N.T. Wright captures well this misunderstanding when he says, if something in the world seems unfair, but if you believe in a God who is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-fair, one way of getting around the problem is to say that, well, it only seems unfair, but actually isn't. There was, after all, some secret sin being punished. And a lot of people believe that, don't they? But Wright also notes, and I think a bit wryly, 
that it is a lot more comfortable to put forward this belief if you are well-off, well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed, completely healthy, and where no one could ever possibly think that you have any hidden sin. But what happens when you, who are well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed, get unhealthy? What happens? I leave that as an open question. Sean Booster, a voice of prophecy, whom the, uh, the, the loose offering is going to uh, today, has a story that illustrates how this belief plays out. Uh, that's not the wrong, right one, so put that down for a moment. A friend of his was diagnosed with cancer. Shortly after he received the diagnosis, a church member decided that he, the church member, knew why his friend had gotten cancer. So he dropped by the house to visit the friend who had got cancer and accused him. You eat cheese. Well, it's kind of absurd, isn't it? The church member assumed that the cancer must be the fault of the sufferer. God was not being unfair, as N.T. Wright indicated. But since the friend's life seemed exemplary, the visitor narrowed down the options to the one sin, in quotation marks, that he, the church member, knew about, that the friend ate cheese. By the way, confession, I eat cheese. So where then does illness and suffering come from? Well, there's been a lot of learned books, learned discussion, learned sermons, learned discourses, by men and women who are better placed and much more qualified than I am to do justice to explaining this. So I will just offer, in brief, a few points for consideration. There are three main sources. The first is sin. We live in a fallen world where sin has debased, deformed, and corrupted every aspect of our world. All suffering, in the broad sense, is due to sin. And we are all sinners. The perfection of the garden has been broken. Not forever, because we look forward with anticipation to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the creation of the new earth. But here in our world, it is broken. In the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the evening with God. We can't do that anymore. And we won't until after the second coming. At the time of creation, Adam numbered the animals. And presumably they lived in peace. Now animals hunt and kill one another. In the Garden of Eden... Adam's job was to tend the garden. Now, through the sweat of his brow and overcoming the thistles and thorns is what we have to do in order to have our daily bread. All was in harmony at one point in time. Now nothing is in harmony. We only have to look around us to see that. We only have to look at what nature offers us. 
we only have to look at the depravity of human beings who continue to find new ways to injure, insult, debase, kill their fellow human beings, their fellow children of God. And so we can expect in this world that there are going to be all kinds of problems. There are going to be genetic defects. There are going to be failures of the human bodily system. All these are part of the sin that we face, and the sin brings this upon us. The second point is that we have the God-given gift of free will. This is one of the reasons, of course, why the fall took place. Because Eve chose to accept the blandishments of Satan rather than trust in the promise of God. So each of us can take decisions and make choices which are our own contribution to our own situations. It has nothing to do with God punishing us. In effect, we punish ourselves. And as Sean Boonstra put it, and this is where the slide comes in, if something in the world, day in and day out, we punish the human machine using our bodies in ways that God never intended when he designed them. We skate by on barely enough sleep. We fuel our bodies with processed junk foods. We ingest substances that create short-term feelings of euphoria, but take a toll on the system that far outweighs any perceived benefit. And then, when it all breaks down, we shake our fists to heaven and blame the Creator for allowing us to get sick. Well, who allowed us to get sick? It was us. And George Knight, the Adventist writer and scholar, puts it a little more dramatically. Yes, you have freedom, and God honors your choices, but he's not going to save you from your bad choices. So, George Knight says, you can choose to lie down in the middle of the freeway, if you want, but when you are run over by a semi-trailer, don't blame God. You did it to yourself. Bear that in mind. The third point and it's been referred to already and was spoken of earlier in the service, is that we have Satan. We have Satan. As Jesus pointed out, the enemy is among us. And there is adequate biblical evidence to show the wiles and cunning and determination of the adversary who walks around seeking whom he may devour. And he is more than happy to accept and promote the misconception that all our suffering is God's fault. As a matter of fact, Satan glories in that. And every time somebody says, God, why did you make me sick? Satan is much more happy about that. He seeks constantly, constantly to discredit God and our own beliefs in a loving father and to call into question God's kindness and God's plan for the salvation of all of his children. As the SDA Bible commentary concludes, the temptation to think of accident or misfortune as an act of God comes from Satan, 
who seeks thereby to have men consider God a harsh and cruel father. But as Adventists, surely we know better than that. We have been blessed with an appreciation of the role that Satan plays in human life and in human suffering. This is something that escapes the consideration of those who prefer to blame God for misfortune. As I said, we know better. Getting back to, we know better than this, and it is something that we need to teach other people. Misfortune is not with God. Misfortune is with Satan. The book of Ecclesiastes closes after all the chapters that the teacher presents with a short conclusion. What do you have to do? Obey God and keep his commandments. So I will end with a short conclusion as well, even though I'm no teacher. One, do not judge. You know better than to judge others in illness and suffering. And secondly, following the example of Jesus, show compassion to those who are ill and suffering. Help them in the ways that you can, because that is God's will. Thank you, and God bless.